0: Hello, welcome to Chinwag Reloaded. I might just end up calling it Chinwag, but for a while, I'm going to stick the word reloaded at the end because that's what you're supposed to do when you do something you've done before, but you're starting it again and it's slightly different, but maybe not the way you used to do it before. Um, with me today on episode two of the reloaded version of the Chinwag is somebody who's been on countless times before, but is always worth uh, hearing over and over again. It's my good friend and colleague, Scott Lowe. Scott, can you introduce yourself to everybody listening in?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, my name is uh, Scott Lowe, and I am uh, an active participant in the VMware and uh, uh, other open source communities. Um, as Mike mentioned, a longtime colleague and, and, and friend. We've been in the industry many years together, blogging and making our way through the industry. Uh, So I really appreciate the opportunity to be on today, Mike. Thanks.
0: Sure. You make it sound like it's many years. I've always had this vision that we all might end up in some sort of blogger's old person's home or (laughs) IT old person's home (laughs) in about 20 or 30 years' time. You know, I remember the old days.
1: Uh, Well, you know, we can do a little bit of that now. I think you were blogging even before I was, but I started blogging in 2005 and by... uh, by blogging timelines, that's that's like ancient.
0: I know, I know. It was actually John Troyer who said you need to get away from this static website full of PDF and Word documents, wonderful though they are, and actually put it in a blog format. Mainly because he, I think, he found it easier to link to, which just sort of segues uh, interestingly into our first topic. As people know, there's a little bit of to and fro between the the wagger and the waggy, if that's the right phrase, about the discussion topics. Nothing too heavy. It's not scripted. Um, but one thing I uh, came across recently on, on Scott's blog was uh, an announcement that you were closing your comments. And I must admit, your action to do that kind of triggered my decision to also close comments as well. Um, I guess I probably was waiting for somebody, you know, more notoriety than I have to make the big <laughs> leap um, <laughs> rather than being the person who made the first step. So, But um, without taking up too much airtime, what made you decide to close comments? And do you think that marks a transition from internet or uh, IT bloggers moving to a more kind of broadcast relationship with their audience, as opposed to a, a dialogue relationship what, what's, your feeling about him? Why would the change? I,
1: I, yeah, that that's a, that's an excellent question. I, I wrestled with the, the idea of closing comments and, and, and to be, to be clear, I only closed comments on, on older posts. I mean, I, I had posts open from you know 2008 and 2007 that still had comments open, and um, one of the things that that was just so awesome about the site um, and still is in in some instances is the is the the ability to interact with the readers. And um, you know, some of the older articles that I wrote, you know, have 150, 200 comments where people would kind of chime in, and and we'd have this this you know lengthy conversation between various people commenting about oh i did this or i did that or i tried this and that worked or whatever the case may be but what i saw over the last few years was that with that older content at least it was just um it was just becoming blog spam you know bait. it, it was just and, and, and yes i use a kismet and i use other tools you know within the blogging community within the blogging kind of ecosystem to help cut down on that but it became really an administrative burden to keep those older posts open even though Uh, even on the rare occasion, I would get an an actual comment that, you know, somebody, oh, hey, I'm having this problem, you know, thank you for solving it, whatever the case may be, or, you know, maybe I didn't, I tried it and it didn't work. Um, I I was, I was loath to go ahead and close those comments. But at the same time, there was this administrative burden of of getting, you know, dozens of spam comments every day on all these older posts. And so I finally decided that it was just necessary to take all those older posts. I, I think I cut mine off at three years, which is, I think, probably still very generous, uh, and, and just go ahead and automatically close the, the comments so that I wouldn't have to worry about it. Um, but I do think that there has been a shift in, in how within the IT community we communicate. It used to be like, I remember in 2006, right after VMworld 2006 and right after, uh, you know, kind of that initial, or at least it was the initial meeting for me and you were there and Alessandro Perilli was there and all these other guys were there and it was the community guys and, and the bloggers in this, you know, uh, venue in downtown los angeles and it was kind of the first meeting of the social media vmware community and and john treyer was there and shortly after that they launched uh you know planet v12n and 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 the feed and all that kind of stuff but there used to be this this back and forth where you know somebody would write uh, a, a post on virtualization and then other bloggers would would jump in and, and and write their perspective and you would link back to the original and there was this conversation going on within the blogging community and now what i see instead is you know, you write the the article, and, and maybe you'll get a comment or two from readers, but most of the discussion actually occurs on Twitter, mm, right? True. You know, and so you know, we'll we, and all of us have these recipes. Whether you were using if this then that or or some other tool, we have these tools where you know we post something on our site and it automatically makes an announcement on Twitter or on Facebook or you know whatever the case may be, right? And and then you know you'll see people pick up on that and say, oh, this was a great article, or oh, you should go read this, or whatever the case may be. So there has been a, a change in, in the conver- in the way that we conduct the conversation. Um, I will reserve my, my opinion on whether that's a, a good change or just a change.
0: Well, yes, I guess, I mean, I, I've, wondered, I've sometimes wondered myself why that change has come through. And I, I think it does have something to do with the fact that many of us back then were, if not independents, were working for some sort of consultancy firm or some sort of customer using the product. Whereas the more notable bloggers, including myself, are now working for the vendors. And often the blog is very much tied to the work that you're doing with the vendor. I mean, I've just moved team to the Evil Rail team and shock horror, a lot of my content is now Evo Rail focused where it wasn't eight weeks ago. Um so I, I guess that has changed things. Um although I, I guess at that top of that pyramid where, you know, the top ten or top twenty bloggers maybe are working for vendors there's a much larger blogging space which is non-affiliated so it's easy to just look at our little circle of people that we knew maybe back in 2006 without seeing the wider the wider picture of other bloggers in the blogosphere as well
1: yeah that that's a fair comment and there certainly are um a a, a a very large cadre of of you know kind of newcomers into the space which we anticipated would happen over time and and with some of the the notable bloggers moving into uh, into, you know, vendor relationships. Uh, but at the same time, e- e- even given that I still think that the nature of conversation has changed. I still think that the most of the conversation now goes on in this, this ephemeral, you know, sense around Twitter. And it, it's the, one of the beautiful things about the, the comments was that it actually captured that knowledge, you know, it was actually, yeah. it, it was actually a way to capture it. And now with Twitter, it, it's kind of, you know, if you happen to, you know, stick your nose into Twitter at the time that conversation is going, you'll catch it. But if you're off somewhere else, then it just flows by in the stream of information that is Twitter. And, and you might miss some, you know, really important piece of information that could otherwise be captured and, and memorialized.
0: True. And I, I guess the other thing you've got to acknowledge is 140, comment, 140 characters next to a, a comment that might run into a number of paragraphs, which then results in another kind of paragraph worth of, of comments is much more denser and richer than, than, you know, throw away links and whatever in, in, in Twitter. I perhaps that says something about how the way social media has become more fragmented and less dense in the quality of the interaction that people have. I'll say it. Uh, I think it has. Um, whether well, that, I, yeah. whether I that, agree. Yeah. Whether that diminishes the whole thing altogether, I think is perhaps doubtful, but it certainly makes it a bit more fragmented. I guess it's not unlike, you know, we now look back at the days where families sat around the TV together, watching something together as some sort of cold in the era, compared to an era where people channel hop and don't sit around together. But I guess 20 or 30 years ago, people used to decry, you know, people, why are families just sat in front of the TV watching it all together at the same time? This is not what family life is meant to be held about, but we now look back on that as some sort of uh, glory period. But... I think, like you, I was feeling the getting the same uh, experience. I had a lot of comments which looked like genuine comments, but turned out to be just spam, so they were getting more sophisticated in what they were posting. And I think I actually got caught out the first or second time, um, oh, this content's really good, but you could improve it by doing X, Y, and Z. I actually responded to that thinking it was a genuine comment until Mm -hmm. I realized, oh, actually the URL this is going to is is just spam so I had to get rid of it which I guess is an indication of how sophisticated these spammers are becoming because like you I had all the other bits on a kismet and whatever and that used to do a great job but it was just getting silly I was getting 10 20 30 of these a day which probably isn't that much compared to say what yourself and Duncan got on your sites because I'm relatively new with my blog you know, the the new name or whatever, right? A lot of people, right. a lot of people still say you're blogging at RTFM, and I was like, that's not really. two years ago, <laughs> um, so it's quite extraordinary. It's like gone that way, but I guess as long as the content is produced to a certain quality, the fact that comments uh, maybe aren't available is perhaps um, uh, something to be a bit disappointed by. But I was interested that you said it's only on the older older posts, mm-hmm. like the more recent stuff, which I mm-hmm. guess that kind of makes sense because people tend to react to the latest thing that you've done. Um, and was that your thinking in, in making sure that new posts that are for a certain age are still open for comments?
1: Yeah, it was. As I mentioned earlier, one of the things that I really, really enjoy about the site is the ability to interact with readers. And in, in many cases, these are readers who come back again and again, and you'll see them post. And, and it almost becomes, it's not quite as as fast as Twitter where you can become sort of you know Twitter friends with somebody very, very quickly, right? But you begin to develop this relationship with them and you kind of recognize their tendencies and their thought processes. And I really wanted to, as much as possible, preserve that part of of what I thought was useful about the site, a way to bring people together around content that everyone found interesting or useful. Mm. So that's why I said it, it's only for you know, posts that are over over three years of age, right? So if it's been published in the last three years, comments will remain open unless I specifically closed them when I published it for some reason. Um, and, and I'm going to give that a try and see how it goes. And if it ends up being still too much of a of an issue, then I'll, I'll shorten that time frame and, and see how it works. But sure. I, I did want to to at least offer that opportunity for people to be able to respond and and share something about about what they were reading.
0: Sure. I think what I will do is probably revisit in a couple of months time in the hope that some of the anti-spam tools have got better and therefore it becomes less of a of a burden. Okay, well um on to other stuff that I picked up from your blog actually and I I was interested in this because I along with other people within the Evil Real team monitor the Evil Rail community and try and respond to any uh, inbound kind of questions from there and i was asked uh by somebody on the community about evo's r- rails relationship to this thing called intel uh rack scale and I, I sort of dived into the intel website like that <laughs> like off into the deep end and went oh i'm not i'm not really sure whether this is kind of related to what we're we're doing um but i noticed on your blog just before preparing for this particular podcast that you've been Talking about and writing about um, Intel rack scale. So, can you tell us more about it? Is it related to the kind of hyperconverged kind of area, or is it more in the realms of VCE and Evo Rack and FlexPod, that kind of architecture? What, what's Intel doing with this?
1: Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. Um, I, I've had a lot of conversations over the last couple of months around rack scale. So, uh, my first introduction to RackScale came last year um, i've been I think it was last year, maybe a year before, but I've been fortunate enough for the last last couple of years to attend uh, Intel Developer Forum, which occurs in San Francisco at Moscone just a couple of weeks after after vMworld and This is the opportunity for Intel to, to bring together their developer community um, and talk about what they're doing you know around their initiatives, whether it be new CPUs or new systems on chip or you know whatever the case may be right And I was first introduced to RackScale architecture. And at the time the the focus for Xscale architecture was how they were going to um, basically explode a server you know today we we buy a unit of computing and it is you know a pair of CPUs with some number of sockets, some amount of RAM, some storage, and some network connectivity and it's all in a single box right and and you need more of that you add more boxes and what they were talking about at the time when they first started talking about rack scale was we're going to take we're going to explode those components out and we're going to have these components basically not in a server anymore. You're going to have a rack, which will have a you know a tray or a sled or you know whatever term you want to use of CPUs and a bunch of memory and some storage and some network connectivity, and then we're going to give you a software piece that lets you compose a server. Out of these disaggregated resources, um, the the idea being that you know, hey, I could buy some you know number of CPUs, some number of RAM, and then I could use the software to say, oh, I want a server that has you know lots of CPUs but a little bit of RAM because I'm going to run a you know CPU intensive piece, or I want a server that's got a lot of RAM but not a lot of CPUs because I'm just going to run RAM intensive, and you basically tailor the server. Right. This this composable entity, this composition of of different resources to do whatever workload you want. And, and I questioned at the time and still do the value of something like that when we're running an abstraction layer on top of that, whether that abstraction layer is a hypervisor, whether that abstraction layer is something like an operating system with containers on top of it, whatever the case may be. I think the world is moving towards this layer of abstraction everywhere. Right. And and we can have a separate discussion at some point about what that abstraction layer is going to be. But um, when, I, when I revisited the idea of rack scale architecture again this year, they kept saying to me, and they being the Intel folks, kept saying to me, it's a logical architecture. It's a logical architecture. And, and, I, and I'm trying to wrap my head around, okay, what does that mean exactly? And I kept asking questions, and they kept kind of giving me this answer, but it didn't really answer the question, you know, kind of like <laughs> the way politicians do. I assume that happens in the U.K. as well. Yes.
0: world
1: um, <laughs> Okay, there we go. So I finally went down to the show floor one day, and I spent two hours um, at the Rackscale booth um, just, just getting into this conversation with a couple of program managers from Intel around what Rackscale architecture was. And I talked, um, so I did a podcast with Greg Farrow a couple of weeks ago um, about the same thing because Greg was at the show and we talked about Rackscale architecture and why, you know, why would customers use it? Why would they not? What was the benefit, et cetera, et cetera. And I shared with him on that podcast as well as in a blog post about what I had learned regarding. Rack scale architecture in this comment that it's a, it's a logical architecture. And really what what happens is there's a couple of different things that Intel kind of lumps together in this this single umbrella term, rack scale architecture, right? One of these is the the disaggregation of resources. One of these is the saying I'm gonna have a tray of CPUs and a tray of memory and a tray of disks and some you know connectivity up at the top. And you can, you know, basically instead of buying servers, you know, one U, two U things you're going to buy, you know, CPU cards or memory cards or whatever to add more resources. Um, so that's one thing, right? That's, that's part of it. That's and they're and they're driving forward with that, with that idea as part of this overall effort, right? And that's, and that's fine. I don't think that part of it is applicable to a lot of customers. I think that part's applicable only to the, the mega scale companies. Um, I mean, I personally don't see what the benefit would be to any of Intel o, Intel's OEMs. You know HP, IBM Dell, all the big names that people buy from, what possible benefit there would be for them to adopt that architecture? I, you know I, maybe I'm missing something, but in any case, the second piece of it is they're trying to drive APIs that exist at the hardware layer. in other words these are these are hardware level APIs that would actually give software, whether that be operating systems or hypervisors or schedulers or whatever the case may be on top of this, um, really complete visibility into what is actually in the data center like one of the things they mentioned is that a lot of data centers actually have a difficulty understanding what's actually there right Um, you know how many servers are actually in the data center how much compute power is actually there how much ram is actually there and and there's no kind of standard way of doing that and and they pointed to ipmi as just a failed effort that didn't really go far enough to do what they were doing and so um for the reader's benefit how how, you know for those of you that that are listening um, go out and look for this thing called the redfish specification. And this is kind of an initial effort by Intel Ericsson, um, I think HP, I'm not, I can't remember who's involved, but it's an initial effort at saying these are some hardware-level APIs that would allow us to, at the very least, get complete visibility and ideally would allow us to actually manipulate the hardware um in some sort of standard way. Right. So whether you had a Dell server, whether you had an HP server, whether you had a Lenovo server, whether you had a um, you know, whatever else if it supported this hardware level API, then you could configure it, you could query it, you could get information from it in a standard way. So that's another part of it. And they're gonna move forward with that. And that's fine, I could see that being beneficial to any OEM, I could see an OEM wanting to go ahead and build that into their into their server, and then possibly building their own kind of inventory management tools on top of it, you know, Dell offering, uh, they used to have this thing called manage, you know, HP has uh, Insight Manager, or did anyway, and maybe they still do. Uh, you know. I, I could see OEMs saying I could do this and I could offer some software on top of that as a value add. Okay, that's cool. Then the third part um, is uh, this software. um, uh, They have a couple of different terms for it. They've called it the pod manager, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the software that then says, I want to assemble or compose um, a server and the server being a logical entity out of resources that exist at the physical layer. Right. Um, now, the problem was they kept saying when they are talking about rack scale, they want to lump all three of these things together, except when it's convenient. And then they want to split them. And so, you know, this guy kept saying, um, oh, well, you know, this will work on any server. And I'm like, well, well, hold on a second. So you're saying that I could take this pod manager and a server that supports these APIs and I could potentially compose or uh, a, a what they call a logical server or a pooled server out of out of these entities? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, okay, but that's fine. But every time you guys talk about this, it's always in the context of this hardware disaggregation model. So they really have three different efforts that are kind of involved in, and depending on, you know, I guess it kind of goes back to that analogy of the blind men with the elephant and then each one sees only some aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I guess, depending on which aspect you're approaching it from, you would see different things. But the idea is that there's, there's three different things. There's this hardware disaggregation with this high-speed um, silicon photonics interconnect right? That's one thing. Then another thing is this hardware set of APIs, this hardware level APIs that allow you to to query and or configure hardware, any hardware that supports a mini vendor. And then the third being the software that sits on top of it that would allow you to compose it. And as long as the hardware APIs are there, then the the underlying form factor doesn't really matter because an industry standard server with the hardware APIs could work with this software, whereas disaggregated hardware with these APIs could work with the software, right? So there's this this they're they're related but not necessarily tightly coupled and that was the thing that intel was having a really hard time kind of getting across to people and you know supposedly after our discussion they said it made a lot more sense and they were going to change their messaging but we'll see whether that ends so does that help at all or
0: it it, it does i sort of this this thing the pod manager sounds like you're making a physical virtual machine (laughs) because it's completely logical but it gets its resources from that this physical hardware, regardless of what the form factor is, it kind of right. reminds me a few years ago, I came across a customer who had some sort of IBM servers and I forget the name of what they were, but they could each be linked to each other until they became one computer that they could see each other's memory in each other's CPU. But it was still in a kind of modular format. And he was asking me whether, you know, VMware would work with this. And I was like, God knows I've never come across this server hardware in my in my time. But one of the things I thought was interesting about it is the model that we have at the moment is you stack 2U or Blades or 4U servers, and then we put VMware on top of them and that creates a logical pool of all those resources. So if I, I mean, in terms of the Evo Rail, it's a 2U box with four servers, 192 mm. each times by four, you create one cluster of that. The one thing I've often struggled with to get across in people's minds and in students' minds is once you've overlaid that logical layer, so you're representing around 800 gig worth of memory, that people start to forget about the physical layer Mm -hmm. being there. And the reality of it is it's still this printed bit of steel and the memory is only accessible to the CPUs on that Mm -hmm. motherboard. So when the VM is running, despite the fact you have a cluster of one terabyte worth of memory, the VM can only see all well, the memory on that particular physical server. And it's almost like you have to keep both of those kind of models in your mind at the same time. The book yep. stops with the physical world, but for ease of management, it's easier to regard them as a pool of resources, but the book stops with the physical world. So, <laughs> so it, I, I can kind of see the appeal of that to some people, because if you can free yourself from the constraints of the, the form factor, then maybe you are closer to just consuming resources in a purely logical kind of way. But I, I can see what you mean. It seems like the industry is, is pointing in a totally different opposite direction, which is let's rack and stack commodity hardware, which has got set limits. I mean, that that's why I think is sometimes the limitations around hyper-convergence, and also one of the advantages is we set very strictly what the resources are available in the appliance but then customers go, yeah, that's really good. It's nice and nice and restricted, and we all know what it's going to be. Can I have more memory in it, <laughs> or can I have more <laughs> more CPUs or more storage? And it's like, well, you, that's the point. You've bought into this restrictive, very controlled model to ease deployment and scaling up, um, or scaling out rather. Uh, but then you want the other thing, which is to- the complete opposite, which is total flexibility. Right. And right. I, that, what's what I so when you talk when you described. Intel scale that seemed to me like the complete flexibility because you're not bounded by a form factor of blade to you for you. Um, what what I was thinking of when you were talking about is how all these bits are connected. So you said there's some sort of optical link between the memory and the CPU bus and the, the, the network layer. Is that right?
1: Yeah, Intel's been pushing this thing they're calling silicon photonics, Ooh, which is uh, scary. I know it's yeah, it's mm-hmm. like a yeah. I think you know one of the other things I kept talking about too was that you know they 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 always talk about silicon photonics when they talk about rack scale architecture, and in silicon photonics being this this new interconnect that they want to push, you know, 400 gig or something like that with with extremely low latency, such that it's a, it's actually capable of being. Um, an interconnect between, let's say, a CPU farm and, and a memory bank, right? Um, whereas now those, you know, that, that interconnect is traces on a on a circuit board. Um, but at the same time, they also say, "Oh, well, yeah, you could use, you know, converged Ethernet or something like that, uh, or something they call Rocky, which is RDMA over converged Ethernet." Mm. Um, and it's almost like they're kind of trying to keep their options open. They don't want to commit to one thing necessarily. Uh, I mean, I, and I get what they're trying to do, and that is, you know, they they want to offer the flexibility for people to build these architectures in a variety of ways. But mm. you know, it's it's early days yet with 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 rack scale. I mean, I think I think the the disaggregation piece is, uh, to your point, kind of opposite where the industry is going. And this is something that Greg and I talked about quite a bit: is that why would somebody do that when they can just go buy a one U or two U server? I mean, those costs are well known; they're well understood. It's you know. I, Greg even made the comment that for some of his customers, it's cheaper to just go buy more capacity than to argue about what it should look like and try and, re, you know, try and, and, and ring out another 5% of efficiency. You know, like the, the whole process of trying to make it more efficient is just that's too expensive. That's too time consuming. Let's just buy extra capacity. Right. And literally it's cheaper to do that as opposed to going through these exercises, by the time which I think spent, is going to be. By the
0: time you spent money. By the time you spent time and money trying to make it more efficient, you've you've just burnt the five percent that you might have gained.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so I think the disaggregation piece is kind of yeah, it's interesting, uh, almost like a science experiment. Out out of this whole thing, actually, the most most interesting part to me is actually the hardware APIs. If Intel is capable uh, and successful in creating a a a standard hardware API that is both um you know can both be queried in terms of gathering information about the underlying hardware mm. to give software above it, a very complete view of what's there, as well as being able to, to be written to, to configure it, then you could actually see the evolution of the hypervisor or the abstraction layer kind of folding in that pod manager I was talking about and being able to, to compose uh, you know pools of hardware underneath it um, or even enable virtual machines to span that physical boundary. You know, so I mean, so those are very interesting possibilities there. If Intel is successful, and their OEM community adopts this idea of these hardware level APIs that are standard across vendors. Sure. Um, if, they, if they aren't successful there, then I think the rest of it, the silicon photonics and the, the hardware disaggregation, all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, uh, I'm just not sure that the industry is gonna go that direction.
0: Fair enough. Well, the, thing, the other last thing I was thinking about was, and I don't know whether this actually ever happened, but I remember when UCS first came out and everybody was talking about how the blades would just be this block of compute. And because the ease of provisioning whatever you wanted on the UCS Blade was so easy, you could have, during the night, a UCS Blade running one workload that was potentially intensive, and then it would reboot, and it would run an entirely different operating system or hypervisor, and it would carry out this task. So, in a way, you're kind of constantly burning, running that hardware at. Maximum utilization by working running different workloads on it. I don't know whether I've ever come across customers doing that, but it was one of the things that was often talked about when UCS was first touted. and in a similar way. So a a way of a block of compute and I can use it and reprovision it and make it do whatever I want when I want. I'm not sure whether that happened though. Is that something you saw customers doing?
1: Yeah. I can't definitively say that for sure, Nobody's ever done it, but my impression is that that is, uh, lives in the same realm as unicorns and cloud bursting
0: <laughs> or following the sun. Do you remember that one? Oh, right. yeah. Or follow
1: the moon. Either one, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> where workloads uh, yeah, I mean,
0: around, where, where, power exactly. was cheap.
1: Yeah, the... yeah, yeah. Live migration, no less across, you know, long distances. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, th- there may be customers that are doing that. I would say, if that's the case, they are extremely rare and it's more just the, you know, the the idea that you're capable of doing that than than the actual people doing it. That's my impression.
0: Given that we still have a situation where people massively over-provision VMs more resources than they need, which you would think by now we might have cracked that particular nut. If we can't get that right, what is our chance of, you know, today my server runs this thing and tomorrow it runs something else. At the very least, I think most people would say, you know, if it's running the thing today, then we'll leave it well alone in case it doesn't run that mm-hmm. thing tomorrow. This constant that's, change, that's exactly right. yeah. change is something that most people would say there's too much risk involved in doing that. Okay, so our next topic. Not, I mean, I'm not doing very good segues here, you know, picking up. The thread, <laughs> but you talked about APIs. APIs are often used by scripting engines. How about that for a? There we for go a, for a lousy segue. And I, I noticed on your blog you'd been writing about this thing called Vagrant, which is an Interesting name for for any piece of software, Uh, but I understand it's it's a scripting engine, but I'm not sure whether it's one in its own right or whether it's a hybrid Mm of of, you know, Python or some other scripting. But obviously Mm -hmm. it, it caught your attention because you wouldn't write about something that you were not interested in. So can you tell us a bit more about what Vagrant is? Is it yet another kind of scripting set of formats that I have to get my head around? Does it offer something unique and above you know, all these other scripting engines that seem to be proliferating? What What attracted you to what attracted you to the Vagrant? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. So the the interesting thing about about Vagrant and um uh you know we'll talk more in a little bit about about kind of you know my focus these days at VMware and around technologies and stuff. But but I I, I find myself you know, spending a lot of time working in environments that you might consider um and this term is overused a lot of things, but you might consider kind of more DevOps oriented, right? Um and and the idea being, and I've spoken about this in recent VMUG uh, presentations that I've given, the idea being that, you know, what we what we're really trying to do is to eliminate the friction that a developer um, experiences in trying to produce the software they're trying to produce. And move it from their development environment into a testing environment, into a, a production environment, right? Um, and so that that has led me to you know all kinds of interesting things. You know, I've written about Puppet, and that's something you often see. Configuration management tools like Puppet and Chef and Ansible and Salt are often things you see in these sort of DevOpsy you know environments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it led me to talk to look into things like Docker and, and containers, which of course are the new hotness and can do no wrong. Um, but but. And and I'd been hearing about Vagrant for a while, but I just kind of like, yeah, I don't have time to mess with that. Uh, you know, I'm looking at these other things. But then I, I started looking at this again, and realizing that there there you know there really was something that I probably needed to talk about. So the idea behind Vagrant is that um, you can define in a in a text file um, what they call a Vagrant file because they're very original that way. Um, the basic you can define. Um, a virtual machine configuration or a multi-VM configuration. Like you know, let's say that as a developer you need, um, you know, a, a multi-tier sort of environment. Let's let's use the classic, probably overused, you know, web app DB kind of tier right thing, right? right okay. okay, and and you're writing some piece of code for that. You know, you're you're writing some Java code or some some other code that's going to you know run on the web. That's going to receive requests on the web server, talk to the app server, pull data from the database. Okay. And so you wanna turn up that environment. You wanna have some way of easily spinning up this environment so you can run some code. The idea behind Vagrant is I could create a Vagrant file, which is just a text file using the syntax that Vagrant uses, which is based on Ruby. And um, in that, in conjunction with a virtualization provider um, would allow you to spin up the VMs with the specific networking, the specific resource allocation that you wanted and basically turn them up very, very quickly, right? Um, now, Vagrant by itself is just kind of a, an orchestration tool, right. right? What it has to have on the back end is this virtualization provider, and so it has. It comes out of the box with a with a with a piece to drive VirtualBox, which is you know the free open source you know virtualization piece. But you can buy a VMware provider that actually lets it drive Fusion or Workstation. I believe Workstation. I know for, know for sure Fusion. And then the open source community has written some vagrant providers to drive it, um, for example, against vCenter or against uh, vCloud Air or against, you know, some other various, you know, VMware um, uh, platforms, right? And and the idea would be that you could take um, a vagrant file um, and um, then there's another piece that what they call a box and the box is basically just a VM image, right? Um, nothing more than just a VM image. The problem with with boxes is that – you end up with different formats sometimes. And so you might be able to find a box that works with VirtualBox, but not with Fusion. So that kind of defeats some of the purpose of Vagrant in my mind, but is the that, idea would be- a
0: virtual disk format that's different from yeah. one? Yeah, right, okay. yeah,
1: exactly, right, right, right. And so the idea would, the, the kind of the, the perfect ideal would be that you could take a Vagrant file and a box that was portable across providers and be able to instantiate that same environment that you described in the Vagrant file across any virtualization provider. Right mm-hmm. um, now, that breaks down in practice because you know we have boxes that aren't compatible with one another, that sort of thing. Um, but but the real kind of value is um, a couple of things. One is is it allows a developer to, to to describe what this environment needs to look like in a text file, and that text file can then be version controlled using Git or any other sort of version control management system. Um, it allows you to instantiate that 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 uh, that environment that you've described very very easily. You know, I can just, uh, the command literally is, is vagrant up and it will take that vagrant file and the instructions contained in it and spin up the virtual machines and assign the IP addresses you want and connect them according to how you want them connected. And then you're done, right? At that point, your environment is up and you can begin deploying code, you know, cloning from GitHub or whatever the case may be. And in theory, if your box was portable across virtualization providers, then you could take that same Vagrant file and that same box and then say, well, I did this on, on Fusion on my local workstation. Now I want to deploy it against vCloud Air and then take that same Vagrant file against the vCloud Air provider and spin up your environment in vCloud Air. Um, now, again, that breaks down in reality because of vo- box problems, box incompatibilities and that sort of thing. But that's, that's sort of the idea. The other nice use case, even though you can't get this sort of cross provider Portability all the time. So the other nice use case is that I can take a vagrant file and I can create a vagrant file. And let's say that you and I were working together on something. I could take that vagrant file and I could share it with you. And then you could take the vagrant file and spin it up, and you would have the same sort of environment that I had so that you could walk through something, right? And so what you see in some cases is that people are um, on on their websites or I mean, maybe even in books or videos or whatever, they'll say, Here, we're gonna show you how to do, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is, X, right? And here's a vagrant file that you can use to spin up the environment so that you can follow along. Mm. Right. Um, which makes it very easy for them to kind of say, I'm going to show you a demo. And then if you have vagrant and this vagrant file, which I'll give you, and maybe I'll publish it on GitHub and you can just clone it down. Um, then you can follow along with this demo as well in your own environment. Right. Um, so there's a, you know, a few useful use cases. Um, uh, it, it doesn't quite, in my opinion, live up to the sort of the ideal that it could live up to. Mm. Um, but, that's 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 sort of the, the basics. Does that, does it does that make, make sense? sense.
0: It, it sounds a lot like what OVF is meant to be, an open virtual machine format with all those descriptors. And the OVF can contain IP data or, or manner of attributes, mm-hmm. time zone and whatnot. So is this not doing the same thing as an OVF or is it the intention that because it's open source, it can be used by... Anyone, I mean, I know the open virtual machine format is very closely associated with VMware, but it is meant to be an open format that anybody could use. Am I being a bit naive? Yeah. You know, a company like VMware or Citrix or Microsoft says here's a standard. We're making it uh, open. Doesn't necessarily mean it is adopted, and doesn't necessarily means it becomes a standard. Is that is that the problem with mm-hmm. those different formats? So I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, somewhat. But the other the other thing is that Vagrant provides some so I see those two as actually very complementary like like OVF is intended to provide you know a set of uh, a, a cross-platform way of describing a virtual machine or a group of virtual machines now OVF by itself you know doesn't address the underlying disk format for example right because the disk format can be contained in the OVF or described by the OVF manifest or contained in the OVA file which is just a tar of the OVF and a bunch of other things and so you could have an OVF that has a VmdK in it right, which doesn't really make it a cross-platform, although lots of other products read VMDKs. You could have an OVF with a VHD in it, which is kind of specific to Microsoft, right? So, you know, OVF by itself doesn't quite address all of that cross-platform portability. But but in addition to to OVF, what Vagrant provides is this, this orchestration thing of saying Vagrant up and taking whatever might be present in that OVF or that group of OVFs and, and actually and actually communicating with the virtualization provider and saying okay here's you know here's the the um the virtual machines that I want you to turn up and here's how much res- how many resources I want you to, to to allocate to them and the IP addresses that I want you to assign to them um and and then you know the ability to connect into those uh, those VMs. Let's say they're running Linux. You know you can do a Vagrant SSH, and it will automatically handle sort of the authentication for you. So it just kind of drops you right in. There's no passwords you have to manage or anything of that nature. Um, and then to say, oh well, you know now I'm done with that uh, with that environment. Uh, Vagrant destroy, and it just kills the whole thing, right? Um, there's a, there's a level of orchestration that is complementary to what OVF is trying to do, um, that really make those two. You know, kind of more side by side than ever, one a replacement for the other.
0: Sure. I guess. I mean, I don't know how you feel about me saying this, but it it guess like this vagrant thing is going so far for you, but it, as you said, it falls short because of the image compatibility issues that inevitably get introduced. Is this really an argument for having proper standards around virtualization that are more, you know, governable by the internet or something like the internet societies, like we would have for the mm for the World Wide Web, um, because we have got different vendors with different competing standards. It sounds like to me that you could have a descriptor that describes the virtual machine that could be translated and recognized by any vendor, but the book kind of stops with the actual image format. And, is you know, is that really, are we really getting the heart of this? Is that in order to solve that problem, we would need to get all these various companies to agree on a single standard for the virtual disk? Is that is that what we're really getting at here?
1: Yeah, I, I do think that's the case. I mean, OVF does a great job of providing the sort of virtual machine metadata, you know, what, how many CPUs, how much RAM, you know, what kind of network connectivity, et cetera, et cetera, right? But what it doesn't address is that virtual disk format. And the vendors have given you ways to convert disk formats from one to the other, but converting from one format to the other isn't the same as that it actually being stored in some sort of vendor neutral or or some sort of industry standard format that multiple vendors could consume, I mean the ability, for example, for us to say, I want to be able to move VMs from, you know, a developer running, you know, VirtualBox on their local machine, and then be able to export that as OVF, and possibly using a, a tool like Vagrant, which is complementary in terms of how it does the orchestration, along with, you know, an OVF. Um, being able to move that then say to vCloud Air or to, you know, to a vSphere installation with vCenter, it just It's almost I won't say it's impossible, but it's extremely difficult today, right? And the open source community is doing some interesting things around being able to consume VMDKs and consume VMX files and that sort of thing. But the vendors, you know, continue to push, and and, you know, VMware, along with you know, Microsoft, Citrix, and the others, continue to say, you know, we want our own sort of our own specific thing. Now, there's pros and cons to both approach. You know, if you if you want to innovate, um, be able to provide some sort of new something you know whatever that is right um then it's very difficult for a vendor to be able to do that when you're bound by some sort of industry standard or industry common you know format um so so there are pros and cons but at the same time it would be nice e- even if it were just an interchange format even if you know VMware continued to use vmdk and Microsoft continue, and Citrix continued to use vhd and you know uh, KVM and the others continued to use qcow uh even if there were some sort of interchange format you know that everybody could talk into and back out of again, right? Mm. So,
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've looked at these conversion tools. The last time I looked at them was specifically about moving workloads out of various clouds. And I guess we've always talked about workload portability and the VM is a very portable workload within reason. And then one of the things I, I was horrified to discover was when people try to pull out their VMs out of certain public cloud environments, they're charged by the gig to actually do that. And it is so expensive by gig to leave these public clouds that very often they just take away their data because that's the only thing that they really care about, destroy those instances and recreate them somewhere else. Um, So it's one thing to have the open formats, but then you might find yourself rubbing up against some other restriction, which makes it uneconomic because of uh, the cost per gig of moving VMs around from one public cloud to private cloud and back again. Yep. I guess it standards it's funny thing standards isn't it i I believe in standards, and I think they're important but i I often think that if you're not careful, standards can actually hold back some industries and the one I always think of is in the telecoms kind of side of things where it certainly in Europe we did have standards bodies that decided you know what a d s l would be and how it would be constructed by the time they agreed on the standard and got to the point of rolling it out. It was already kind of defunct because of mm-hmm. ADSL and it quite quickly changed from being a business subscriber link to being available to everyone because the telecoms firms wanted to make as much money out of it as possible before it got sunsetted by ADSL. So, you know, that those comms providers that a lot of investment was made in, in working out these standards and agreeing standards. But by the time they were ready to be put in place, they've been superseded by some other innovation. I don't know. Right. I guess, I don't know if that's a false comparison because telecoms is always changing. I don't know. Does a, does a VMDK or does a virtual disc, it's a binary file with some header description at the, at the top of it. You know, does it, is there anything really that unique about these different formats? I, I don't know. Uh, Cause I, you know, I don't, go around editing VMDKs. That tends to uh, (laughs) cause horrible problems in my my experience. But I wonder whether the value is in the VMDK. I, I guess another way of looking at it is that some people would look externally and say, well, you know, this is about vendors trying to lock in proprietary formats, whoever that vendor might be, and making it difficult for customers to move from one vendor to another. I'm not really sure whether I buy into that because as you just said, there are plenty of conversion tools it's just their cost of and the time involved in making that conversion. Do people actually want to go through that process mm-hmm. or do they look at that and think, well, you know, the benefits of moving from vendor A to vendor B given the amount of conversion we might have to do, we might as well stay where we are. So, you know, it's kind of not vendor lock in, but the customer locks themselves in because they don't see the uh, advantage in, in doing that conversion in the first place. It, Uh, i I don't know i get torn between these various things i guess in a way i'm kind of torn between the value of open source versus the uh, the value of a company who produces the whole product for you makes it very easy to consume which leads us on to our final topic which is all about open source
1: very nice segue mike
0: oh you do oh well you know it's years of practice (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah it took years of practice to get this rotten at segways <laughs> you imagine what i was like <laughs> when i first started this thing so i'm a bit out of practice as well because i haven't i haven't ran the chinwag for a while I, I will get better at the segways i promise okay you. all right awesome. so uh this is a, like a, st- a typical might Laverick kind of question because it's couched in a load of assumptions which is sort of a kind of devil's advocate question so open source is it still the case that open source approaches to things maybe OpenStack might be an example is still something that's really the preserve of ISPs and very large companies that still have their own internal development staff who, alongside infrastructure people, operations people, sysadmins like me, I guess I still think of myself as a sysadmin despite everything, all my career changes and whatnot, that's where I came from originally, is it still the preserve of those people because you have to have a certain size and scale and resources In order to make it do what you want to do whereas anybody else who wants some kind of virtualization layer or cloud automation layer whoever that might be is going to go to a software vendor who sells them some sort of shrink wrapped solution or even some sort of solution which they subscribe to online so they don't have to actually set up that Mm -hmm. software but they've been wrapped up in a nice bubble where all those sorts of big decisions about how X and Y communicates to each other have already been decided. Am, am I unfairly painting open source is still too difficult for the, the common man, I guess is a way of putting it.
1: Well, I'd, so um, I think that, I, I don't know there's there's always an answer that because the, in some ways the question is a little too broad. I mean, we could talk about open source in general, right? Okay. We can talk about specific open source projects um, as a, as examples of that. I mean, in general, um there are uh open source projects out there that are reasonably easy to consume for the average person mm-hmm. and and the question just becomes you know let let 's take let 's take linux as an example right okay um you know Linux is itself an open source project right um you know various distributions you know red hat SUSE, you know ubuntu et cetera et cetera but it's it's still possible in many cases for um, someone to consume that because you have, uh, in many cases, a company behind it that is offering a support contract, right? So you really have to kind of separate the idea of of developing code in an open source fashion from how you provide support to the consumers of that project, right? I think the thing is that in many cases, you know, there are open source projects where. There is no commercial entity behind it, and it, it's a community effort. And you know, you have to log into an IRC channel, or send an email to a mailing list, or <laughs> you know, find the right guy on a Google Hangout, or whatever the case may be. And then he can tell you, oh yeah, you've got to put this value in that configuration file, and then it works. Um, you, you know, that's that's one sort of. Uh, data point on the spectrum of open source. The other data point is looking at something like a, you know, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, where you know you you get a product, you get a graphical installer, you get a full support contract behind it. You can call somebody up. I have a problem. They're going to work with you, et cetera, et cetera. And yet that is a fully open source, you know, product that you're consuming, right? So, you know, if we look at some specifics, like if we focus in on OpenStack because that's you know that's kind of where everybody's got their, you know, yeah, their, their attention these days. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I spend a lot of time in that space. One of the things that my boss has asked me to do is to be deep into the the opens, various open source communities and you know, open daylight, open stack, open vSwitch, switch, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, open stack itself, again, even, even that specific, you know, project or group of projects actually falls into the spectrum. Like you can go download the, the packages from canonical and you can install it yourself and you're, you know, completely on your own. And if you want some help, you've got to go to an IRC channel. You've got to go to ask.openstack.org and ask a question on a a forum or go to the mailing lists. And, and you know, the community does a, a pretty good job of helping people figure that out. But that sort of approach is more for the people who have the organizations who have the resources, who have the mindset of individuals who know how to go do that. Right. Um, and those are going to be typically larger organizations. And yet at the same time, I could take OpenStack and I could go buy a distribution from somebody. You know, I could buy a solution from Mirantis or I could buy a solution from, from Red Hat. Or you could look at VMware integrated OpenStack as another example, right? Where we're going to give you the same open source bits, but we're going to wrap an installer around it. And we're going to give you a support contract. And we're going to say, if you have a problem, you call us and we'll help you with it. A- problem. And then you go and, and, and you deploy it and you go from there. Right. So, you know, there's this whole range of how you want to consume open source projects, OpenStack included. And um, I, I think that's healthy because it gives customers choice. It gives the consumers the ability to say, hey, I'm I'm more of a you know DIY type person or organization. And I want to, you know, download the packages and and use my own configuration management tools and my own scripts and my own whatever the case may be. And I'm going to build this thing and I'm going to customize it and I'm going to make it my own, right? Which is typically going to be, you know, an ISP or service provider or, or, you know, a a large organization, maybe a telco, something of that nature where they have the resources, they have the developers, they have that mindset. But then there's also the, I'm going to buy a prepackaged solution from Red Hat or from Canonical or Mirantis or VMware or whoever, and they're going to give me a graphical installer and they're going to give me a nice easy place to go download it and if I have a problem I call an 800 number and I talk to a helpful person and they you know walk me through gathering the logs and finding out what the problem is and you know whatever else and then you know maybe there's somewhere in between uh, you know other solutions where the packages are downloadable but you can call somebody for support or something you know it just there's this whole range and it allows people to consume it however they see fit based on their organization
0: and- like Which way do you see the wind blowing towards that support, the 0800 number, or towards, you know, I'm going to build it myself?
1: Um, so it's really more of a life cycle progression, in my opinion. So if you look at where Linux is today, right? I don't know how long you've been playing around with Linux. I've been playing around with Linux for a while. I mm. um, only recently decided that I need to be kind of serious about it because...
0: Stop playing um, around.
1: Exactly. And you stop playing around and get serious with this thing. Right. But, but if you, if you go back, like, I think my first experience, you know, using Linux in some fashion was probably like 1999, maybe 2000 in that time frame, Right. And it was very much the DIY space at that point. You know, it was, you download it, you install it. If you don't know what you're doing, then, you know, you're just out of luck. And Hardware compatibility could be limited, and you know you had to know the right forums and the right venues to go and get support. But then, as the product matures, we see organizations grow up around it. We see um, you know kind of the shakeout of, of key you know players in the space. Whereas there used to be you know a dozen different distributions, now we're down to you know let's say four. You know, kind of the big distributions: Red Hat, Canonical, SuSE, you know, maybe somebody else, right? Um, and and as that maturity of the project itself continues then you see all of this other ecosystem develop around it right and so i think early on in an an open source project's lifecycle, it will be more the diy right and then as the product matures and as it grows and as market adoption grows you will see it move from mostly diy to some diy and some shrink wrapped right Um, and i don't know that an open source project will ever get to all shrink wrapped because the kind of the nature of open source means there are always going to be people in there that are tinkering mm. and and they want that flexibility. So, but there will be the growth of these sort of shrink wrapped 1-800, you know, call me if you have problem uh, solutions around, uh, around projects. I mean, Linux has already done it um, and continues to do it. OpenStack will have the same thing happen. Uh, you know, so I, it, it won't surprise me at all. I mean, you've already seen it with Mirantis, you've seen it with VMware doing getting VMware to open stack. You've seen it with Canonical and Red Hat doing their distributions and offering support contracts as well.
0: Sure. Here's my last last question, and it wasn't one that we really planned, but it's around this topic, which, I mean, you've mentioned Vagrant already, we've mentioned OpenStack. You're watching this area much more than I am. I'm very narrowly focused on, you know, one very set product at the moment. Um. Is there something within the open source community or the open source world that is really putting fire in your belly that, you know, I'm basically asking what the next big thing is, but I'm trying not to say <laughs> what the next big thing is. Um, but maybe the next big thing to you, what something that's really, you know, maybe not necessarily going to be commercially massive, but something that excites mm-hmm. you about the space. Apart from, you know, we talk about OpenStatware, it's a massive project with lots of different component parts. That's it is. one thing, but the, the open source kind of, campaign is much more broad than that is there something in your mind that's you know that i should be watching out in your your next blog post about something open source
1: um you know there's been a few things that i've looked at i think that uh I, i don't know that it's going to be um any one thing um it's going to be more how these things begin to fit together. You know, there's been a lot of hype and 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 truly and honestly, I mean, it's an interesting project, but a lot of it is hype around Docker and containers. And and I've spent a fair amount of time looking at that and there's there's a lot deeper I could go and probably will go um especially with regards to Docker networking, but but the idea around kind of orchestration and and scheduling where you have things like uh Mesos and some others these cluster managers hmm. um, and then how we've kind of begin to fit these things together. Like, okay, I, I have some, some applications and, and I have a, an infrastructure as a service framework and I have some, some abstraction mechanisms, hypervisors and containers. Now how do I get to begin to stitch all this together? What's, what's involved for me to kind of pull all this together to say, well, I want to, To do an infrastructure as a service piece with OpenStack and then deploy Mesos on top of that for cluster uh, managing scheduling, what's going to then spin up some VMs and some containers and how am I going to link them together with networking? I mean, it begins to be a much more more complex systems look than a look at the individual pieces. But in order to get there, you kind of have to take apart the individual pieces first to, to understand how they work.
0: Well, Scott, it's always interesting listening to what you have to say because you 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 live in a world and do things that are so different from from what I I do, and I I could listen to you educate me for another hour. Uh, but I know you're a <laughs> I know you're a busy fella. But thank you very much for for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back in. I don't know, I, uh, maybe next week. No, that'll be too mean. Uh, but in a, in a couple of weeks' time, a couple months' time or something like that to, to hear more about your journeys in the, the world of open source. But thank you very much for being on the show.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I thoroughly enjoyed it, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. Cheers, thank you. All right, take care.